Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. I've had a lot of interesting people on the show. I've had Navy SEALs. I've had guys that started from nothing that built massive companies. I've had billionaires on the show. But my guest today is somebody who I really resonated with because he's got guts. He's got guts to tell his story, his journey on a topic that most of us are terrified of. It's the topic of money. It's the purpose of my book, You Need More Money. It's the purpose of John's book. And John had the guts to tell his own story, to put it out there, to air his dirty laundry in an environment that's like serving yourself up to the wolves. And I know exactly how he feels because I did it too. Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. My guest today is author John Schwartz. Thank you, Matt. John, I mean it. I've done a lot of research on you and your book. By the way, John's book is entitled, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. Yeah, and thank you for not making me do that. <laughs> make you plug it like that exactly i'll plug it plenty but you know you get the first plug in i appreciate that <laughs> the bottom line john is I, I i i followed your story i know your story and i give you so much credit for having the guts to tell it why why did you, why did you feel the need that you had to air your financial laundry in public like this, John? Well, first of all, I went through it and I like to tell stories. I was born in Texas and we're storytellers. But more important than that, I was trying to write a story that would reach people. If you want to get people to confront money, which is a very hard thing to think about, very hard thing to talk about, you wanna wrap it around an engaging story, something that's gonna keep people's interest. and. I knew from sitting around in bars with friends that things I had been through resonated with people and that by telling my story, I could get people thinking about their own stories. By talking about the mistakes I made, I could help people maybe avoid mistakes, maybe think a little harder about what they've been through. And so the idea was that telling my story might end up helping some people. And it's the same interpretation of the requirement that I had in telling my story in my book, You Need More Money. But mine was prefaced under my brother-in-law. And you, you don't know this, John, but the reason for the genesis of my book was that we lost my brother-in-law, my wife's only brother, John. We lost him uh, two years ago. He died at 46. He left a wife and four kids with no health insurance, no life insurance, and a hundred bucks in the bank. And so... I was compelled to tell his story to, to cleanse our family through this, this devastating thing. And I've said this before, but I, my wife and I have been together, not as long as your wife and you have been together, but we've been together 20 plus years and we have a tremendous amount of love for each other. But I know my wife loved her brother more than she loves me. And so to have lost her brother was the most devastating thing that could have happened to her. And you realized that a story as painful as it might be to tell could help other people, could reach other people, right? I did. That's what we did. 
It's, that's, that's exactly how it worked. But along the way, I ended up having to, to tell my story of how, you know, going from zero and making every financial mistake in the world um, and then getting through it and getting onto the other side provided us an opportunity to be able to drop in and help his family through this time in an effort to handle the money and try to get him better, even though it, it unfortunately didn't work. He died almost one year to the day of his cancer diagnosis. And, um, and this has actually become part of my mission in my life. I mean, I'm an equipment finance guy, right? I finance truckers and construction guys and bulldozers and, and big rigs. I'm not supposed to be writing a book called You Need More Money, airing my dirty laundry and trying to help people. That was not your version, correct? That was not, you probably never thought this book existed in you from an early age, correct? Exactly, yeah. So let's go back a little bit because I do love the Texas connection. You and your wife were college sweethearts at University of Texas in the 70s. And so I've been in Dallas for the last 23 years. I know a lot about Austin in the 70s. That must have been a pretty incredible place to, to be going to school in the 70s in, in Austin, Texas. It was trippy, man. <laughs> it was great. It was wonderful. It was, it was lightning know, in a bottle, wasn't it? It was fantastic. I mean, you could, you know, friends were easy to make. Music was easy to find. Food, you know, food and beer were cheap. How many more things do you need in this life at that age, especially? It was, it was, I think Austin in the seventies and even into the eighties must've just been Shangri-La. It must've just been heaven on earth. It felt like that sometimes, you know, uh, my wife and I watched the Richard Linkletter film Dazed and Confused, which comes out you know, not too long ago, but it's about 1975, 76 in Austin. And we just looked at each other through the whole film and said, he was just following us around. How did this <laughs> Well, you know, the city's changed a lot. Technology has taken over the place. It's not the same city. It's still magical in a lot of ways, but not as purely magical as it was back then. Or even when I moved here, I moved here in 95. And every weekend I could get to Austin, Texas, I wanted to get to it. I mean, it was just, it was just so different than Dallas. Um, today, I don't think it has that same level of difference that it did uh, back then. Um, but boy, it was, it was a, a place, even in the 90s, it was a place that people didn't even know really existed. It was, it was just a magical place. It's true. And when, uh, when I was at the Washington Post 20 years ago, I had a, uh, an editor go to Austin. He asked me what he should do, what he should see. So I gave him a, a fill. And then he came back and he said, I don't know, it felt pretty much like everywhere else. And I thought, oh, God, I hope you're wrong. Yeah. But, you know, more and more, I mean, it's, it's hard to maintain that uniqueness at the scale and size that Austin's become. It's just so huge now. I was still Farrah, love it. Was Farrah there Fawcett there? Was she there? And when did Farrah Fawcett go to, to UT? Farrah Fawcett went to UT about the time I was there. Um, I believe that she was a couple of years ahead of me. Not that, not that I knew her. She, would have, uh, she was in the, the sort of sorority orbit and uh but you know so so but but she was famous she had she had gone on to tv and she was uh you know that that uh, while i was in college her poster came out the famous red swimsuit poster so everybody knew that she'd gone to ut well she was a dime a dozen though at ut i mean it was just it was just filled with the most beautiful women i'm sure that's why you and your wife i'm sure well now, women and men i mean you've got well but also you know look uh, Austin is a place that attracts people 
on any given day, I felt like I was walking through a, an enormous genetic experiment. <laughs> about about beautiful everyone was beautiful people, exactly yeah <laughs> so so let's let's move on from there though john is because it really does end up building into the reason that the book was written though when did you know you wanted to be a journalist and a writer well it it came upon me slowly i was uh, working at uh, i was working at the student newspaper of the university of texas at the same time i was finishing law school and so I had two sides to my life on any given, you know, any given afternoon, I was at the law school in morning. And then late in the afternoon, I'd head over to the Daily Texan and work there. And rarely are life's choices presented to you in such a clean way. I could, I could see the people who are going to be lawyers and I could see the people who are going to be journalists. And I could see who I resonated with, right? Who did I feel more like? And, and frankly, um, I just felt more comfortable with the journalists to be than the lawyers to be. They, they, they felt more like me. And I, and, I, and I loved my buddies in the law school, but I also had a feeling that I would be better at, in the world of journalism than I would be as a lawyer. So I turned to Gene. We were married about that time. And I said, look, would you mind if I tried doing journalism instead of law, at least for a few years until we figure out whether I'm going to make it or not. And she said, sure. Okay. I mean, I'd like to live in New York. Why don't we try that? And so, uh, and so we did and it worked out. It worked out. It took you where let's walk through the, the evolution of, of the journalistic career, please. Well, after I got out of the university of Texas, I was, I was in the law school. I finished law school because oh, you you start something like that. Why wouldn't you finish it? Wow. And, uh, and while I was doing that, I was also freelancing and building up contacts in the world of journalism. So when I finished law school, I applied to, uh, I, I was talking to people I'd been freelancing for at Newsweek. And, uh, and lucky for me in May of, uh, April or May of 1985, they hired me. They hired me to work at a side venture of Newsweek called Newsweek on Campus. It was a part of the magazine that was aimed at college students and I had been a college student. I had been a campus stringer for them. I'd written stories for this college, you know, contributed to stories for the college edition. And so when I told them that I was thinking of moving up to New York and living anyway, they hired me. And so that was my, that was my entry into the world of actual for pay, you know, big time journalism. Hmm. And things went on from there, from, from, uh, from Newsweek on campus. I moved into Newsweek after about a year. And then after um, about eight years at Newsweek, I, uh, I got a call from folks over at the Washington Post and applied for a job there and uh, ended up at the Washington Post from 93 until 2000 when I started talking with the people at the New York Times and I got a chance to go to the Times and who would, who would even ask, you know, I, I, it, it made perfect sense to me. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so I came over and I've been here ever since. It's uh, more than 17 years now. But your genre of, of journalism was not always financial based, right? That was not, that was not your, your wheelhouse or your niche. Is that fair to say? Well, it was the first job. Once I got into Maine Newsweek, I was hired for the uh, business section of Newsweek. So the first work I did in journalism was business journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, once, I got, uh, once I got into Newsweek proper. But from there, I moved to all kinds of things because it seemed to me that it was a better thing to um, 
to do the jobs that were needed than the jobs that I charted out for myself. I, I, I don't think that it'd be possible for me to have charted a career and made you know predictions about where I was going to go. But I was always able to see opportunity in this or that job that had come open and go for that. And so, um, so that has led me to write about technology, business, um, space. I covered the space program for the New York Times for six years. I covered the tobacco wars at the Washington Post. Um, most of the time I've been in journalism, I've been a science reporter, but I've also covered the law because, um, you know, you got the law degree. Why not? And, uh, and, and tons of other, tons of other uh, issues and topics just because if you're in a big room like the New York Times, there's a lot of need. Mm-hmm. Uh, breaking news, disasters. I've, I've been through three hurricanes for the Times. Uh, so, you know, you, you, um, you, you find your niche and then you, you go do things. I'm sure, not, not being a highly educated guy myself, I'm sure there's quotes from poets or wonderful writers who have talked about my life journey, but I believe it all comes down to these few moments of guts. In which, in which we are required to do the most difficult thing, which is uphold character and honor and decency and fairness. And uh, I relish those moments. I actually think those are great qualities of a world-class leader. And I, 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 I tried to become one in my business particularly. But you had, to, you had to bridge that in writing this book because of the amount of transparency required to make the book authentic enough to make it meaningful to it. It's not for me. And I know this is the same in your opinion of of the way you wrote the book. It's not good enough to just, you know, throw up on the reader about why they're behind and what, you know, where they screwed up. And then here are two or three tidbits that are out there, which is, you know, um, don't buy Starbucks and save three bucks a day and imagine, you know, imagine what happens over 30 years. Well, you know, that's not my version of my book and it's not your version of your book either, but how did you come to this moment, this pivotal moment that said, in order for me to pull this book off transparently and authentic, with authenticity, I got to tell my story of it. There had to be some incredible difficulty for you talking to your wife about, talking to your friends about. How many of your friends had no idea you were in the spot that you were in, John? Well, that's... You know, I, I jump into these things thinking, well, I'll be able to tell these stories and I'll do it the way I always do it, which is to do my research. And if the research is on me, that's fine. And I sort of get in a zone where I'm just doing the work. And then I finished it and turned it in. And I had people like colleagues who are really big, highly placed business reporters and other journalists say, wow, I always thought you were competent. <laughs> And, and so, so you were the um, guy that had it all together, John. Exactly. And, and, uh, and I realized, oh, I really did tell people a lot of stuff, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I, had. I mean, I, everything I did was intentional. I felt that these were helpful stories and stories worth telling. I told my wife that I wanted to do it this way and she wanted to make sure that I didn't get anything wrong. Um, so we talked about that. But she didn't talk about revealing our problems. I mean, look, we lost an apartment. We, we, we um, gave up a, an apartment in foreclosure. Our first, uh, our first home that we bought was a, an apartment in New York City. And in the 1990s, we, you know, the water went out and, and we were stuck. And uh, 
How much would that apartment be worth today? Well, I'm assuming that I checked it. I've checked various times. Of course, we have. We, we must, like we must stab day. ourselves. Of course, we have to relive our pain. Exactly. And, uh, and I've seen it up at around a million dollars, and I've seen it in the 700s. We bought it for 134 Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we'd held on to it, we'd have made a ton of money, but it was bleeding us to death mm-hmm. with, the, uh, with the monthly mortgage and maintenance payments. It was just killing us. Yeah. And we had gotten a job in Washington, D.C. That's the Washington Post job. And while the Post was able to help me for the first nine months with a, with a supplement to help me get through and sell the apartment, the apartment turned out to be unsellable mm. uh, because uh, because of the quirks of New York real estate that if you own a co-op and the building itself hasn't converted to a sufficient extent, you've got more renters than co-op owners. Um, and if the market is poor, then no bank will give a new mortgage. No bank will let anybody assume a mortgage. So the apartment is just locked up. And, uh, and so we tried to be landlords, but that went very badly for us too. And ultimately, I mean, I, I frankly thought, and, and many family members thought it was time to file for bankruptcy. We were that close, but, uh, but we found a bankruptcy lawyer who convinced me that, uh, that we didn't have to go that far. Well, that's unusual. That that we could give up the apartment in for, in, uh, and that we could give up the apartment and do fine because I still had income. We just had this one crushing debt that we needed to get away from. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, and so this lawyer who was terrific guided me through it. But, um, but I mean, that was, a, that was a real low point for us. But the, the, the premise of, of your book too, John, is that the, I call it in my book, false positive. It's, it's this thought process that we are actually doing better than we really are. And most people think that financial problems happen to people who are broke and they're tapped. And the reality is it's this next movement out of broke. In my book, I call it the accumulation mode, where once the, the bills don't come on pink slips anymore and we actually can buy certain things and we can, we can maybe do the nice Disney World trip, that, that extends false positive for millions, more like tens of millions of Americans who are living in this mindset that things are okay, but they are not squirreling away anything for the future. And um, it's terrifying and it's epidemic proportions in America. And I think the reason for that, I'd love your opinion on it, but I think the reason for it is most people have no concept of how much they actually need in the, in the long term anymore. We are living in this consumption-based environment and we are putting off the future for our, our happiness today. What is your opinion of that? Well, I think you're absolutely right in identifying what is really a basic flaw of human nature, that we're very bad at planning. We, don't, we see what's directly in front of us. We see the bear, we run from the bear. But what we don't see is something that's 10 years away. We don't eat the way we should. We don't prepare for climate change. You know, we're not trying to deal with, with climate change as a culture. We're not trying to, and of course, climate change is what I cover for a living now. So I think about this a lot, but it's all tied in. I mean, we eat poorly. We don't exercise. These are all things that require you to take a long view and, uh, and squeeze a little today in hopes of doing better tomorrow. And this is just a flaw of human nature in the corporate world. It's, it's trying to make the quarter instead of thinking of the long-term health of your company. But it all comes down to the same unwillingness, that same lack of an ability to see forward you know, farther than the bear. 
farther than what bear might be in front of you. And so um, that flaw in our human nature touches all kinds of things. I just happen to write about the way it touches us on money. And, you know, it's also about the fact that money as a specific topic is very frightening to people. They just don't like to think about it. They don't like to talk about it. Uh, it, it breaks up marriages in the same way that infidelity breaks up marriages. It's, it's, it becomes a taboo topic that people have a terrible time discussing. Yeah, they do. Friends do too. We lie to each other. We lie to our buddies. We lie to our family. I lied to my spouse about it for many years. I lied to all my employees about it, um, about how poorly the business was actually doing. You know, I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm supposed to be this young, a high-flying entrepreneur, and 10 years into the business, I'm still busted broke, and I'm trying to make people think that I'm not. And, uh, and you know, the sad part is that so many people live their entire lives like that. Well, it's true. And to get back to the point you made a few minutes ago, we, when we start doing better, that's when the real trouble can start, because, because we can spend a little more. It's very easy to spend a lot more. And instead of instead of change spilling out of your pocket, you're spending big um, on, and it's not, you know, it's not even extravagant trips. It's, it's the, it's the accumulation of things that I don't worry about whether I need to buy this now. So, you know, maybe those theater tickets would be a good idea just because we want to go and we've been squeezed for so long. Well, you want to get squeezed again, that kind of spending will put you there. Yeah, I, I think perhaps a, a primary difference, and I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think a primary difference between our two books is that my book is, is about, um, I, I'm not, a, um, I'm not uh, looking to reduce spending. I'm looking to teach people on how to earn more and to bring more value to the situation that they're in. I think there's this massive deficit. I was just talking to someone about it in my office before this podcast where uh, she's looking for a raise. And I said to her, I want to create the opportunity for you to get this raise. There, nothing would make me more happy to produce this for you. But here are the four things you have to do that you're not doing, right? And I went through the four things for her. And it was literally like she, she, she just didn't, didn't see it. And I said, it's fine for you to come into my office with an open door policy and ask for anything you want. But you must understand that if there isn't ROI connected to it, it will never happen. And ROI is for me what it all is based upon. Whether we are employees or employers, ROI drives the ability to fix the problem far greater than saving on a, on a, on a Starbucks. So when you made the decision, John, to take this year that you put your financial life in order, would you please tell the audience what was the first step you took to get a handle, to rein in the, the bear again? Well, the very first thing I did was to uh, confront the thing that I'd been putting off for a very, very long time, for years and years, which was getting a look at what my retirement looked like. I was in my late 50s, and I had luckily worked for companies all my career that have, uh, have defined benefit pensions. The pensions are there. I have access to, you know, I've got social security, but also I'm, I had a 401k that I'd started making uh, contributions to when I was in my twenties, when I got that first job at Newsweek. So here I am 
with the three legs of the stool of retirement, as they say. You're talking but I pension, didn't... you're talking pension, 401k, and Social Security? Right, or pension, IRA, and Social Security, but your retirement savings, Social Security, and whatever your job provides. Now, too many people today don't have that pension anymore. That That's a benefit that's gone out of the window for a lot of people. But uh, some of us have been lucky enough to work at big companies that still provide that. So that's what I had, but I didn't know where it was going to take me. That when I retired, I didn't know whether that was enough money to live comfortably, to live poorly. I didn't even, I wasn't the kind of guy who even opened the Vanguard envelopes. I just didn't want to think about it. Mm. And so the first step for me was to get my brain around where we stood for retirement. And that started with one of those simple quizzes on the Vanguard website. You know, and if you're at Fidelity, they've got them. And if you're not with anybody, you can still find these things online. And uh, Vanguard said, well, you know, this is a 45-minute quiz. Well, the first question took me 45 minutes to answer. These were not issues that I dealt with often. <laughs> what was the, do you recall what the question was, John? When do you plan to retire? Hmm. And I had never thought about when I would retire. I was... I, I was thinking about the fact that I work with people who work into their 70s, that my father was still working in his late 80s. Mm. Um, but, but here was this question, and I was stumped, and I had to go online and look around for, well, when do people retire? I know this sounds stupid, but I didn't know. You know, when do people retire? And, and it's usually what? 65, John. Doesn't everybody well, know 65? I mean, if I were an executive at my company, they would kick me out at 65. Yeah. But, you know, and a lot of other companies would do the same, but that's not where I was. And, and as a writer, you sort of get to continue doing it until somebody tells you to go home. Um, look, I worked at the Washington Post. I worked with Shirley Povich, who was a sports writer, who continued to work into his 90s, and who, um, who filed his last column, uh, in, in, in during the day, passed away that night. They, of course, published it the next day because his copy was always terrific. You know, that's the way we want to go in the writing business. Yeah. Just, you know, just just take take me out, you know, boots up, and then that's how I want to go. So, uh, but for the purposes of the exercise, I had to come up with a number. So, you know, being the kind of guy I am, I did all my research, and at the end of it, I had a number that I'd like to work until, oh, 70, 72, somewhere in there, and I have a number to plug in, and I look up and I tell my wife, okay, that's question one, and she said, that was 45 minutes. <laughs> she and said, move so over, let me take it. it. Well, no, she she was perfectly happy to let me take the wheel on this one. She, 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 uh, she was not excited about the exercise, uh-huh. but she did want to know where we stood. Hmm. And so, you know, we worked through it all. I got my pension stuff, I got her uh, social security stuff, you know, bit by bit, we pieced it all together. I mean, look, these things have questions that are horrifying. How long do you think you'll live is one of the questions. Well, that's an essential question because you got to know if the assets are going to be there, right? Except how long am I going to live? I mean, that's a, that's a horrifying question. But (laughs) again, you sort of look at your parents, you look at your grandparents, you look at, you know, again, that my dad was working in, in this, it, to the age of 90. And you say, well, maybe I've got some time, and, uh, barring getting hit by a bus during my morning run, maybe I can do okay. And so over the course of a week, I gathered together all the numbers, 
I plugged it all in, I submitted it all to Vanguard, and they sent me back a report that said that uh, we were on track to meet our goals. Wow. Which was great. But I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. And, and of course, they said a few other things. They said, you're pretty heavy into stocks at this point in your life. You probably want to have more funds. And by the way, there's some very nice Vanguard uh, funds you could be looking at for that. You should be shifting around and we don't charge you to shift around. All that, all that advice was, was in there. But just seeing that, barring apocalyptic economic disaster, barring other problems, that if I keep putting in the money I'm putting in, we'll be, we'll survive. We won't be rich. We won't be more comfortable than we are today, but we should be okay. And that was, that was a tremendously liberating feeling. Sure. And so, you know, so then with that under my belt, uh, just like knocking out your debts, you know, with, with that achievement under my belt, I wanted to plan the rest of it. I wanted to figure out the rest of it. Let's move on to the other things we haven't done yet, which included for a guy in his late fifties, getting a will, which I didn't have yet, even though we had three kids. I mean, that's nuts, but we finally did that too. Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting twist, John, because you're extremely fortunate that you were uh, able to get the result you got. Because most people, when they do it, especially at the age that you were doing it, they are woefully behind. And, well, that's exactly right. And that's a terror. I mean, you, you reference it as liberating. Most people, it's debilitating when they do it. And they say, now what am I supposed to do? And they go into absolute panic mode. And the sad part is, in my research for my book, is most people just give up. And they just say, not in my lifetime. I missed it. I blew it. And I, my book explains to people how that is just, that, that defeatist attitude is, is just completely unacceptable when it comes to money. Because we can fix our money situation with a, with a pretty simple roadmap. There are lots of ways to make up the gap. Yes. And some of it involves sacrifice. But, but look at this question. You know, look, at, look at one of the questions in the Vanguard uh, uh, questionnaire. How long do I expect to live? Well, if I expect to live into my 80s, at least, potentially into my 90s, then I'd better be putting money away now. I'd better be putting more money away now. Um, this is the time to be doing it. And so I, in fact, ended up adding more to my, uh, to my 401k and, and upping that some because I realized that, uh, that I needed to be more comfortable. I talked to uh, experts in the financial world for the book and said, what about the people who are in their 50s and really have not adequately put it aside? And, um, and Burton Malkiel said, well, you do it now. Mm-hmm. You do it now because the best way to make sure that you'll have nothing is to do nothing. Yeah. But, well, I, mean, I mean, the math is pretty straightforward on it. 21 years at a 6% rate of return, putting starting with $2,000 and simply adding $2,000 a month for 21 years ends up being a million bucks. So if a guy does it in his 30s or in his 40s or in his 50s, a million dollars is still uh, a very achievable number on, based on that math problem. It actually works. That's exactly right. And you can use the sliders on this. You know, yeah. if you're a little behind, you can, you can put in more. If you have the, if you have the ability to do it. And, uh, and what, what I tell people to do in starting is first start early. Start in your 20s if you possibly can. And, uh, and build that IRA or 401k, depending on what your situation is. And you can start it with a 1% of your income contribution. 
But then what you do is you set it to automatically up by another percentage point the next year and to automatically jump every year in this small increment that unless you're really squeezed, you're not going to feel. And to let that build up happen over time. That's the way to ensure for your future without, um, without feeling a terrible bite. Well, compound interest was the saving grace for you and your wife, though. Because you had started early, that was one of the reasons that you were, you were able to, to actually even be on a version of autopilot that worked out for you. Is that fair to say? I would say that, that compound interest, but also uh, a generally rising stock market. Yeah. That yes, you know, yes, we took a hit in the mid-2000s. Yes, you know, there have been recessions and the stock market is, has, has dipped. But over time, the market tends to rise. And, uh, and we were pretty heavily into the, uh, these low-cost, low-fee index funds that reflected the market. And so we just sort of gradually rose with all the other boats. But John, what else did you do to put your financial uh, life in order? I mean, we, we, we dotted the I's and crossed the T's by getting the will. We got transparent. We got open. We searched for the truth, and we found out where your existing situation was. You got a very uh, uh, good dose of information where so many people go the opposite direction. Keep going, if you don't mind. Expand on the other uh, aspects of, of getting your financial life in order for that. Of course. Of course. Well, first of all, I did, I did the reading. Uh, all the things that I had avoided learning uh, about, not just about my personal finance, but about um, what you need to know about money and about retirement. I went through and, and read some of the financial guides that I had put aside. Um, beyond that, I, uh, I got, uh, along with the will, I got uh, medical directives. I looked at my life insurance. I looked at my health insurance. I was a little worried that if I left my job, I would be put in a position of having to get a new life insurance policy and, and, uh, and that in my 60s, that was going to be a pretty expensive proposition. So, um, so I you know, buckled down and went through the process of, uh, of getting a life insurance policy, getting the physical, answering the million questions that these people ask, and then locking in a rate for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, so that I would be covered whatever happened with my job. Um, similarly, I looked through the health insurance to see whether we were adequately covered. And, uh, and things like that, that sort of checkup, um, all, part of, all part of getting things tidied up. Uh, checked all our expenses, looked at the places that money was leaking out. Yeah, like you, I'm not really impressed with the idea that if you don't drink the Starbucks, you'll be rich. You won't. You won't. But, but, but you, have, you do have to look at what money you're spending and whether all of it, you know, do you need Netflix and Hulu and iTunes and Spotify? Do you know how many subscriptions are going to just leak out of your bank account every month? And, um, and, and it just forces you to think about the money you're spending and make choices, pay down debts that you can pay, uh, and and uh, and be a little more, to use the term, a little more mindful mm-hmm. about what you do with your money and where it goes. Mm. I think these are our, our books are, are are quite different, and I think that's very interesting for the audience to know that because well, you're um, an entrepreneur. You 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 know you you're you you have built a business and you are supporting you know employees. It's a it's a very different position, but you know what you're doing is fantastically important. 
Yeah. And, and what you've done in the book is fantastically important because I don't do any of this in my book. I don't go through any of this checklist at all, which I think is so vital for most people. I mean, mine is basically a book that says, create, figure out the, take the time to figure out your mission statement, your core values, your lifestyle by design. What is it? What is this visualization that you see for yourself and then force money to create it? And, and I, unfortunately, I think so many people spend so much time giving up that first piece of my, my suggestion, my journey, my roadmap, because they don't know how to tackle the second piece. And the second piece is actually pretty easy to tackle. I mean, I, I look at money as like, a, like an old dog. It just wants to roll over and be petted. But most people are, are afraid to even talk to it or touch it or anything. It's a really, money is really very simple to master. Um, when we understand a few things. And one of those is what do we want money to do in our lives? I've got friends that, that, you know, drive a truck six months out of the year and surf in Costa Rica six months out of the year. They live incredibly rich lifestyles, unbelievably rich lifestyles. It's exactly the way they want to do it. And it works out beautifully for them. Some people you know, have to have private jets and, and stay at the four seasons everywhere they go, whatever. I'm, I'm not judgmental on that. But what I do believe is that we have to have this vision for what is our life supposed to look like and how do we make money a, a active component of it? Because if we don't, that time marches on and that old saying of it, you know, it, it, it just catches up to us and it does. And it's nasty right. when it does. That's right. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur. I make the money that I can make through, um, through my employer. And if, you know, if I get lucky through the books that I get to write, but, uh, but in saying that there's still a degree of choices that we all can make. You know, I, I, uh, I've been driving the same car for, for 10 years and, uh, and people laugh at the thing. It's, it's a, it's a little tiny smart car from Germany that I paid 14,000 for. And I love the thing. It's a rattle trap. It's uncomfortable. It's loud, but, uh, but it, but it gets me where I'm going and I'm absolutely in love with this terrible rust bucket of a car <laughs> at the same time on the weekend, when I get ready to drop charcoal on the grill, I buy some pretty good steaks. To do <laughs> and so these are the choices. You know, what's important. I don't care what I look like when I'm on my way to the train station, but, uh, but, when I, when I burn a steak, I want it to be good. Well, it's, util it's utilitarian and, and it is your lifestyle by design. It is, it is what John wants for himself. It's choices through focus. And that's the biggest problem. Most of us are literally just floating on this stream called life. And we, we are going where the current takes us. And when it comes to our money situation, that is probably the most disastrous way to be. We have to take control of our money. I'm with you. So I'm grateful that you, but John, I do just, as we close, I want to stay on the power of transparency for a minute because, uh, and I've never said this to anybody on the podcast before, but I lost a friend over this book, a friend of mine um, who I cite in the book as a person who won the game of money, older gentleman. Um, basically, basically uh, punted on our on our twenty year friendship because of the way I represented him in the book, huh. and and I was so upset about it because it was actually I thought I represented him like a hero, someone who who was who who played the game beautifully and won it, 
He didn't see it that way. So what other shrapnel has occurred from you writing the book? Well, I'll tell you, I got an angry note from uh, our youngest son. Wow. Um, because, uh, because I pointed out in the book that we were, um, that when we wrote the will, at the moment we wrote the will, uh, he was having problems. He had been dealing with depression and anxiety and, uh, and had uh, withdrawn from college. And he was home living with us. And, uh, and so when we went to see the, the, the lawyer to write up the will, that was very much on our minds. And we told the lawyer, you know, we think maybe we need a trust for him um, and maybe administered by his sister and that'll keep them in touch and, and, uh, and it'll make sure that there's some money being provided for him if, if we leave anything. I mean, you hope uh, that, 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 it would, that it would last a longer time. Not because he's irresponsible. He's not. He doesn't have any of those problems. We just wanted it to stretch out. And, uh, and the lawyer said, yeah, I've seen this before. It's a reasonable thing to do. I'll write it in. And we forgot to tell him, which is, you want to talk about transparency. There's your first mistake is, you know, you tell him. So we didn't tell him. He finds out because I get an excerpt of the book in the New York Times about Will's and I get a text message from him that says, Ahem. and has this line underlined from the piece. And, uh, and I go back and I say, I should have told you. He says, yes, you should have told me. But also, um, look, this, this, this trust is BS. I don't need this. And, I, and at that point, we're now a year and a half, two years after that moment, Right. I've turned in the book. I've rewritten the book. It's the book is now published. And I realized that's true. In the year since that happened, he had gotten a job, had been a terrific, dependable employee, had showed up every day, had, had, gotten, uh, had gotten a good grip on the depression and anxiety issues that, were, that he was dealing with, and really seemed as steady a citizen as you could ever want. And so, um, and so there's a little shrapnel there, but what it led to was my saying, when we see the lawyer again, we're going to take the trust out. That's and he awesome. said, good. He's okay. Mm. Well, that's awesome. I mean, that's very telling on a number of things. What it, what it tells me is, and the audience is, how long it takes to get a book published. Everybody thinks it's quick. Oh, man, don't even, don't even start me on this. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Oh. I mean, we're talking about, you know, I have data points in there from 2014 and 2015. You know, I mean, it's just, that's just how long it takes. The, the, and, and it's so funny, too, is I know you've experienced this on your other works, but, you know, your opinions change. Right? You don't always see it the same way that you did two years ago when you're going through it. Life changes. And life changes you. All this stuff happens. Uh, the, the book, you know, the turning in that draft of the book happened and then there was a rewrite. Once I turned it in, I turned it in um, uh, in, you know, uh, sort of mid to late 2017. And the editor said, okay, we'll have this out April 2018, which was a, a, a five-month turnaround. I said, you can't be serious. Well, this was the fastest turnaround on a book. But still, between the first draft and, and getting it published is, is a year and a half, you know, well over a year. Yeah. And uh, a lot of things can happen in that time. Yeah. Uh, just in, in disclosure, John and I share the same publisher in Penguin. And, uh, not, you know, I found them to be incredible to work with, as I'm sure you have too. But the process of writing Absolutely. a book takes a long time. 
And, uh, you know, it's just the nuts and bolts of getting, I guess, graphics and typesetting and, you know, all of the other things through it. But um, for me, as I hope it was, what did you say, John? I said, and also for me, having, you know, had the, the, the people at the publishers, I, I had an editor, Megan Newman, who was just, she's just brilliant. And she really helped shape the thing. She really understood what it needed to be better than I did myself. And, uh, and then there's all these other people that, that work at a publisher from, uh, from copy editors through publicists. And, you know, I mean, it, and uh, it's, just, it's just an enormous enterprise. And having that kind of talent behind you, it's unbeatable. Yeah, it is. And, and a lot of people question, you know, well, why did you go a publisher route versus a self-published route? And the, the end result is I did do it. My first book was self-published. But there is something very beneficial about it. And it's exactly what you said. It's you're working with absolute pros who know how to deliver the best possible product from this piece of clay that you've sort of served up and given them. And, and for me, I served it up thinking it was on a silver platter. And they came back and said, uh, yeah, we're going to make a few changes here. So I, I love working with, I love working with good. Yeah. That's when you know they're good. Right. That's exactly right. You know that they're not afraid to tell you that there's some work to be done still. Well, John, the book is called, this is the year I put my financial life in order. I congratulate you for doing it and telling your story. um, Because I believe that that is, that is the crux of it all. Do, do we get so blessed to have a point in our lives where, where we are required to have true transparency in all that we do. And I just relish those moments. I've only had a few in my life. My book is one of them. And I have a feeling yours was one of yours too. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. John Schwartz, the author of This Is The Year I Put My Financial Life In Order, same publisher as mine, therefore available on any channels, right, John? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere, anywhere books are sold. Bookstores. I see it in bookstores. That's a thrilling thing. Isn't that cool? But that's right. You can get it IndieBound, Barnes and Noble, you know, dot com or, you know, just all over. Yeah. Congratulations, John. I wish you the best of luck. It's a pleasure to meet you today on the show. Thanks. And same to you. Thank you. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.